Chapter Five of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Nature of a Hero. He came into Captain Meaghan's office about noon, carrying his turnout of fire hat and rubbers in a bran sack over his shoulder. He wore his cap slanted down on an ear that had been nipped and scarred with fire. He had the face of a veteran from the regular army in the West, deep-eyed and lean, as if heat and exposure had tried him out to bone and sinew. He introduced himself briefly. "'I'm Brunton. I've been transferred here.' and the captain was so absorbed in an admiring scrutiny of this unbeautiful recruit that he did not answer. From the tales he had heard of Brunton he had expected a thick-set burly gorilla, and Brunton was tall and loose. His neck rose from his collar as long as the neck of a plucked turkey, and he had a trick of hitching up his chin every now and then, with a nervous twist of that neck, as if his collar pinched him. It was a mannerism that appealed to Meaghan for obscure reasons. It had been the mannerism of a friend of his earlier days, a red-headed daredevil of a boy who had led the gang to which Meaghan had belonged. "'Feelin' all right again?' he asked affably. "'Yes, sir,' Brunton said. "'Feelin' fine. Much doin'?' "'No, not much. What kept you late?' Brunton replied vaguely that there had been a delay about his transfer papers. The captain accepted this unsatisfactory explanation without suspicion, and swung around in his swivel desk chair. "'Gallagher'll fix you up when he comes in,' he said. "'You'll find the boys upstairs.' And having waited for Brunton to go out, he drew a cigar from his pocket and presented it to himself with an air of flattered self-congratulation. For Brunton was the popular hero of the whole fire department. He had been only eighteen months in service but already he had been entered seven times on the roll of merit. He had first distinguished himself, as Meaghan remembered, by climbing up the back of a burning house without a scaling ladder, from sill to shutter and from shutter to moulding, to rescue a child from a third-story window. He had made himself famous in the department by diving into the steaming drip of a flooded cellar to bring out a suffocated pipe-man. He had made himself famous with the public by crawling in among the burning timbers of a house that had collapsed, and working there with axe and handsaw for an hour, a stream of water playing on him to keep his clothes from catching fire, until he had released a fireman who had been pinned down in the wreckage. He had been a scout in the engine wars, it was said. He could lift the tail of a five-ton truck with his shoulder. He could go down the leader pipe from a burning roof like a guinea's monk. In short, there was nothing that he could not do, if he had not already done it. And Captain Meaghan, thinking over these things, smoked and smiled. He had no misgivings. Latterly he had been receiving all clumsy probationers as recruits. It was a new and grateful compliment to have a Brunton transferred to his roles. He had no suspicions. Brunton had been injured in his last exploit, and had been sent to the Bronx to rest in the comparative quiet of a suburban engine-house. This was his return to active duty, evidently. The captain smoked and smiled. He was still smoking when his lieutenant returned from dinner, but the look of complacent satisfaction had left his face, and he was listening impatiently to the shouts of laughter that sounded from the sitting-room upstairs. "'Brunton's here,' he said. "'See what's going on up there.' 
Lieutenant Gallagher hung up his coat and cap, and went to investigate. The noise stopped at once. He came back with his face divided between a smile and a frown. "'It's just that Brunton,' he reported. "'He's been showing them a trick of swallowing money, and then bringing it up again.' "'Brunton?' Meaghan said, with a surprised scowl. Gallagher laughed apologetically. "'Well, it was Donnelly's fault, I guess. Brunton was doing it to catch Donnelly.' "'Huh!' the captain grunted, mollified. "'Donnelly, was it?' The lieutenant nodded. He said Brunton was palming the money and wasn't swallowing it, and Brunton stumped him to mark a quarter and give it to him. And he swallowed it all right, but now he says he can't get it up again, and Donnelly's out twenty-five cents. The captain's mouth twitched. "'Serve him right. Donnelly's been getting too wise round here anyway. He thinks he knows it all. Serve him right.' He reached for his cap. Give Brunton the bed down by the window and move Donnelly up nearer the pole. He went out for his three hours off duty, being a one-mealer, and Lieutenant Gallagher drew a package of fine cut from his hip pocket, rolled a ball of it between thumb and forefinger, and sat down to chew over his doubts of Brunton. It was evident that the new man was a peculiar genius, as Sergeant Pym, privately interrogated, had confessed and it was evident, too, that his reputation gave him a prestige among the men that would be powerful for good or evil. Gallagher had tempered old Meaghan's absolutism by allowing the men a degree of liberty in their leisure hours, and a license of unusual freedom during the captain's absence every afternoon, from two o'clock till five. He began to fear that Brunton might lead in an abuse of the company's privileges, and he listened with uneasiness to the growing uproar that began to echo from above stairs. The sallow Donnelly, Long Tom Donnelly, put his head in the door, in the midst of these reflections. "'That man's crazy,' he said. "'He's sitting up there with strips of paper pasted all over his face, and a paper funnel on his nose, making faces at himself.' Gallagher recognized the personal bias of this report, and said nothing. Long Tom shrugged a shoulder and withdrew. Sergeant Pym dropped in, quite casually, a moment later. "'Brunton's a regular goat,' he laughed. "'He's got Long Tom on the run, pretendin' he's crazy. It's good as a nigger showed up there.' "'Don't let him get too gay, Pym,' the lieutenant said. "'He'll be making trouble for us all with the old man, if he ain't careful.' Pym dutifully smoothed out his grin. "'Oh, he's all right.' It's been pretty slow for him up in the Bronx, I guess. He's feeling his oats, getting back downtown. He's after Donnelly, that's all. Donnelly tried to come the lofty on him, and he wouldn't stand for it. The lieutenant shifted his cud. Tell him to go slow on it, he said, somewhat reassured. Sure, Pym promised. He's all right. The lieutenant rested on that promise until another of the men, on his way out to his dinner, looked in, laughing, to report. "'Brunton's more fun in a cage of kittens,' he said. "'Pim's putting him on to Donnelly, getting back at him for setting the cop wise on that trick he played the kike down the street. He's got Long Tom going for fair.' "'Pim has?' Gallagher said. He knew of the bitterness between Pim and Donnelly. He knew that if Pim saw in Brunton an agent of retaliation, there would be no limit to the fool's play he would instigate. That was the known defect in Pym. 
he was wise in the affairs of his profession but outside of them he was as irresponsible and mischievous as a schoolboy there was nothing now for gallagher to do but to wait until the men went beyond bounds and then to repress them with a prompt show of authority he waited in the meantime from sleight of hand and coin swallowing brunton had gone to uproarious foolery he had badgered the contemptuous donnelly until long tom had gone downstairs in disgust to look after the horses and he proposed now that he should startle donnelly by sliding down the hay-chute to him from the storeroom to the ground floor feet first his audience did not suppose that he would dare to do it and encouraged him jocularly until in the face of pym's warning that he would either stick in the walls and smother or drop down the two stories and break his legs he got into the chute cried here goes nothin and disappeared the crazy dare-deviltry of it left the men standing snickering guiltily at one another gad pym said we'd better get down and get a hearse and they swarmed down the sliding poles after him to the ground floor they were met by donnelly who came running to the stairs with the expression of a man who has seen insanity behind him came brunton covered with the dust of the chute his shirt-sleeves torn at the elbows and his fingers cut i'll fix you he was saying i'll cut your heart out crazy am i by cricky mike i'll fix you crazy am i i'll blow your brains out by cricky mike he winked at the men and went after donnelly muttering crazily and the crew dodged behind the truck and struggled with the agonies of their unrelieved laughter bent double or leaning helplessly against the wall choking and shaking in silent convulsions donnelly burst in on the lieutenant with a sputteringly excited account of the affair and gallagher heard him out without comment i can't interfere the lieutenant said doggedly as soon as he does something against the rules i can call him down but i can't until he does leave him alone keep away from him well i'm tryin to keep away from him donnelly protested and he's chasin me all over the place the lieutenant took up his newspaper i can't help it he repeated you'll have to fix it up between yourselves donnelly went back to his persecution and it proceeded in a conspiracy of silence which all the men joined it endured without official notice until captain meaghan had returned and the lieutenant was already congratulating himself on the end of the trouble when donnelly came back in desperation to the office to report that brunton was threatening to shoot him he's crazy he insisted he's crazy and he's got a gun in his clothes at that he's crazy captain meaghan taken unawares glared at him in astonishment gallagher asked did you see the gun you ask pym donnelly cried he saw it he told me pym's playing you i guess the lieutenant said the captain found his voice to demand suddenly who's crazy brunton is donnelly answered pym told me captain meaghan leaned forward at him grasping the arms of his chair you go and mind your own business see he said you're a pinhead that's all that's wrong with you you're no good it'd take a whole crew of you and a battalion chief to make a man like brunton you get out of here and shut your holler donnelly swallowed and made as if to speak shut up and get out meaghan ordered in a voice that fairly blew long tom backwards out of the door 
blamed yellow cur the captain muttered coming round here with a whine like that lieutenant gallagher did not reply and for the rest of the day donnelly suffered dumbly an organized persecution that allowed no echo of brunton's horseplay to reach the office but at eleven o'clock that night when peace seemed to have settled down with darkness on the house and the bunk-room was as quiet as a nursery asleep and there was not so much as a snore to disturb the dimly lit repose of the hypocrites in their white cots a shot exploded on the stillness with a stab of flame and a deafening echo a scream of terror wailed up after it horribly shrill a roar of laughter followed in a tremendous guffaw and rose in the half-light with a volume that shook the walls the captain's door flew open before a bray of anger donnelly crouching in the aisle between the cots greeted him with an indignant he's trying to assassinate me and the room rang with the haw-haws of the men who could no longer struggle with the convulsions that shook and twisted them as if they had all been taken with fits captain meaghan shouted at them in vain until the lieutenant turned up the gas-jets on the pandemonium and the men surprised by the light smothered themselves in their pillows and choked down their laughter to a suppressed and spasmodic snorting and grunting the captain standing in the doorway in his underclothes his grey hair tousled from the pillow swore at them in a wrathful bewilderment long tom donnelly stammered unintelligibly and pointed at brunton and brunton sitting up in his bed stared in the wildest bewilderment what what's up he asked at that innocent inquiry sergeant pym rolled out of his bed in his blankets and writhed helplessly on the floor drumming with his heels on the linoleum brunton looked around at him and blinked who fired that captain meaghan cried he did donnelly screamed i seen him i was watchin him he's been threatenin shut up meaghan ordered he bore down on brunton with his hands clenched did you brunton shook his head open-mouthed no he said i was asleep i he looked about him at the men shaking under their bedclothes what's the matter he asked mildly sergeant pym on the floor squealed in another spasm and the men who had been holding themselves in to listen went off again into hysterics as if they had been a class of boarding-school girls meaghan leaped around at them with the purple face of a man on the verge of apoplexy and he was still struggling with an oath that stuck in his throat when the jigger on the wall clicked and struck if it had been a cry of fire to a theatre audience roaring at a farce or the warning shot of an outpost to a company of soldiers singing around a campfire it could not have made a more sudden silence the men started up on their elbows the captain stopped with his hand in the air dropped it and turned the bell clanged out its swift strokes and paused and the men were out of their beds and kicking into their boots and trousers before it could complete the alarm sergeant pym followed brunton down the sliding pole and leaped with him to the truck where'd you get the gun the sergeant asked out of the corner of his mouth brunton leaned over to answer behind his hand up in the bronx i had to carry one dunk cooper's gang was after me pym whispered what'd you do with it brunton winked and laughed i got it here and while they were still laughing the catastrophe began to develop 
on account of the disorder in the bunk-room and the consequent unreadiness of the men to respond to the alarm the man on watch had been left unaided to lock the collars and hook the bit-snaps of the three horses as they charged down on him from their stalls and while he had been still struggling with the last of them long tom donnelly had sprung into the driver's seat so excited that he did not wait for the word of command before he jerked on the reins brought down the harness on the horses backs and started them out the watchman had time only to jump aside from their heads he had not time to make sure that the doors had been slid back to the walls and the hub of a front wheel struck an edge strip that was projecting from the door frame and smashed through the heavy timber with a noise that frightened the horses and a shock that almost threw captain meaghan from his place on the turntable he shouted at donnelly and confused him the more and the truck turning too sharply swung its rear wheels wide over the sidewalk and dropped them with a jolt from the curbstone to the gutter brunton grunted swerse and ridin strip saddle he tightened his belt in a few moments he added lickety-split cricky mike for the horses were leaping along in a furious gallop he leaned out from the side step to see the off horse plunging ahead he heard meaghan cry hold em in hold em in donnelly answered through his teeth something's loose they spun past a corner light with all the men craning their necks to see captain meaghan shouted hell that bit ain't snapped the center horse the truck began to swing dangerously from side to side. Lieutenant Gallagher turned to the men. "'Look out now, boys,' he said. "'What's the matter?' Brunton asked him. The sergeant answered. "'They're off. They be in the lead. Her bit ain't snapped.' The three horses, running wild, were pounding out the confused clatter of a stampede over asphalt and paving-stones instead of that regular pulse of hoof-beats which times the speed of a well-reined gallop donnelly braced and straining clung to the lines but the pull was all against him and the great animals jerked and tore at his arms as they rose and fell he was being dragged not they driven and they were dragging him straight for the waterfront down a sloping street so narrow that it was impossible going at such speed to turn a corner from it the captain reached forward and hooked the leather strap that held Donnelly to the seat. "'Get both feet on the brakes,' he said. "'Hang on to them!' Long Tom did not need the order. He was bent forward, bareheaded, his face set to the rush of air. He was as cool now as a railroad engineer watching the tracks ahead. But the brakes were useless to stop a ten-thousand-pound truck running on ball-bearings behind three deep-chested mighty-flanked fire-horses gone mad together they shot past the pillars of an elevated road and the truck took the car-tracks with the bound of a toboggan another electric light whipped past them the shadows of another dark street leaped to swallow them like the mouth of a tunnel and there were only two more streets between them and the piers Captain Meaghan pushed back his helmet from his forehead, and looked around at his lieutenant, as if hoping for the suggestion of some aid, and he saw Brunton swing nimbly up from the step to the other side of the turntable, and peer out at the horses. "'What are you doing?' Meaghan called. His voice was lost in that clang and roar, and rattle of jolting wheels and ringing pavement, and clamouring bell. Brunton did not notice him, but dropped his head into his shoulders like a cat, 
and went forward around the turntable until he was crouched at Donnelly's knee. He jumped forward and disappeared. The captain turned to catch up a lantern, but a lurch of the truck almost threw him from his hold, and he could only cling helplessly to the iron upright and wait for a corner light. As one flashed by, it showed Brunton astride of the off-horse, working forward to its shoulders. Before the darkness closed again, he had reached its mane and stretched himself out along its neck to catch the bridle of the middle horse. Captain Meaghan understood that he was trying to pull its head around and throw it, as a cavalryman throws his mount. But he understood also that this was the sixteen-hundred-pound filly of a mixed-blood Percheron mare, and as strong in the neck as a bull. And Brunton had not even the purchase of a bit to aid him. When the feeble gaslights of half the block had flowed past, without any slackening of speed, Meaghan gave up hope. "'He can't do it,' he groaned. "'Run him into something, Tom.' Before Donnelly could answer, there was a flash of fire at the horses' heads, and a shot rang out above the noises of hoof and wheel. A second report cut the echo of the first. The middle horse leaped and fell kicking. It was dragged between the poles on the asphalt until it brought down the nigh-horse. The truck swept them forward in a struggling heap with broken poles and snapped harness until the third horse fell too. And then the front wheels jammed into them and stopped the truck with a lurch that shot Meaghan forward as he leaped. He lit on his feet and ran to the poles. "'Bring a light!' he cried, forcing down the head of the struggling nigh-horse with his knee. "'Brunton!' he said hoarsely. "'Brunton!' There was no answer. Lieutenant Gallagher and the men ran up with lanterns. "'Loose those flank horses!' Meaghan cried. "'He must be in underneath!' The men began to unbuckle the tangled straps. "'Cut them! Cut them!' he ordered. He reached down to raise the head of the bleeding animal that Brunton had shot. Lieutenant Gallagher touched him on the shoulder. "'Brunton's over there, on the curb,' he said. And Meaghan turned to see the missing fireman sitting beside the gutter, painfully nursing a bruised shoulder. It was plain from Brunton's expression that he was pretending to be more hurt than he really was, and below his exaggerated grimace of pain there was a sheepish look of guilt. Captain Meaghan stared in surprise and bewilderment, and then he remembered that forgotten incident in the truck-house, and he understood Brunton's expression, and his face changed. He drew a long breath. In the silence one of the men snickered hysterically. Meaghan shouted at Brunton, "'You're a liar! You fired that in the bunk-room!' and threw up his hands and swung a passionate kick into a lantern that stood at his feet. It rose flaming, fell with a crash of broken glass, and went out. In the darkness the men heard his profanity choke in his throat. He coughed. He said in a moment, "'Fix those horses and let's get out of here!' Three hours later the men had returned to their quarters, a very dark and solemn crew. Captain Meaghan had not spoken a word to them. He had gone upstairs to his office without even stopping to look at the two lamed horses or to examine the truck, and when Gallagher followed him twenty minutes afterward, he found him sitting dumb before his open journal, a dry pen in his hand, and the lid of the inkwell still unlifted. Gallagher waited. Meaghan did not move. "'Better leave that till the morning, I guess, sir,' the lieutenant said. Meaghan reached out quickly, 
dipped his pen and drew a shaky black line through Brunton's name on the roll. "'Brunton goes back to the goose-pastures,' he growled. "'Take Donnelly off the seat and put him on the tiller again.' Gallagher waited. "'What about Pym?' Meaghan swung around to him. "'Pym? What's he got to do with it?' Gallagher said, "'His monkey-shinin's at the bottom of the whole thing. I know he didn't mean any harm, but he started Brunton going in the first place.' Meaghan threw down his pen. "'Well, darn my eyes!' he cried. "'I'm captain of a crew of fools. I'm up against it.' There was a suspiciously timed tap at the door, and Gallagher opened it to find the shamefaced Pym standing on the threshold. "'Well,' Meaghan growled. The sergeant took off his cap and slunk in guiltily. "'Captain,' he said, "'if there's going to be any trouble about this thing, I want to take my share of it. I—' "'You get out of here,' Meaghan ordered. "'You're the blank, blank, fool that didn't know it was loaded. I'll lose my job through you some of these days, Pim. But it's no good talking. You're too old to get sense. Go on. Go to bed.' Pim nodded solemnly. "'That's right, Captain. That'll hold me for a while. That's right. I'm a blank old fool. I'm a blank old blank blank. That's right.' He went out abusing himself vilely. "'Good night,' he said, and shut the door. Captain Meaghan put an unlighted cigar in his mouth, rolled it over between his lips, and shook his head blankly. "'That's the second time,' he said. "'That's the second time I've been up against a man that wasn't scared of nothing. And they don't do. They don't do. I might have knowed Brunton couldn't have done the things he's done and have good sense.' I might have knowed it. These here heroes, he shut his journal with a bang, I don't want no more of them. They're no good. They're no blank good. End of chapter 5